And I think that naive optimism is a good thing because otherwise you'll never try anything. And so I ended up cold calling the second largest HIV hospital in the world, uh, Helen Joseph, which as I was lucky enough, it was literally around the corner from where I lived in Joburg at the time. I called them like a crazy person and just said, well, I think I can help you. And obviously they distrusted this lunatic that was (laughs) wondering. And it took me a while to convince them that I- That's amazing. I I love that you had the gall to call them up and be like, hi, I'm Gustav. I'm going to help you. I just like, I just called, I literally called the the front front desk and said, well, I think I can, I I think I've got an idea. And I just kept on like badgering them. And then I I, I met a a really amazing chief uh, doctor there. It's it's still amazing. Hi, everybody. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. In this space, we'll be hearing firsthand the stories of people who have dedicated their lives to fighting poverty or delivering healthcare. People who are experimenting with the idea, can technology help us do this better? And as we learn about their inspiration and fears, their doubts and their triumphs, my hope is that we can also piece together a few lessons learned for those of us trying to do the same. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Gustav Prekelt to our show. Gustav is founder, chairman, and CEO of the African-based Prekelt Group. Prekelt has delivered essential health messages directly to 100 million people in dozens of countries. Among other things, they run the official COVID-19 hotline, not just for the South African national government, but also the World Health Organization. This makes it the most popular WhatsApp service in the globe. But the conversation you're about to listen to is the story of the man behind the institution. It's the story of a young serial entrepreneur and the tragedy which ultimately would inspire him to start prekelt.org. Intertwined in the story is also the story of modern-day South Africa, from the HIV epidemic to apartheid and Mandela. And it's a story of hope, of idealism, and of the endless work of making change that Gustav continues to this day. We start off with a bit of background. Well, you can probably hear by my accent. I am uh, (laughs) South African, born and bred. I actually grew up in Germany uh, until I was six. Oh. My parents were diplomats and I, I grew up there, came back quite young. English is my third language and uh, I'm actually uh, German and Afrikaans are my first and second languages and then came back to South Africa when I was six and did my schooling here in South Africa. I grew up during the, the apartheid years in South Africa. I was very lucky. I think our generation especially uh, were extremely lucky to grow up in that period and then see this this incredible transition that happened during our lifetimes. It was on my 21st birthday that uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, released. Oh, wow. And it was... Oh, it was what a, a birthday. Uh, I know. It was just one of those really incredible times to live. I mean, obviously, you know, growing up in a country uh, with apartheid, it's very hard thinking back uh, about it now. And it's interesting, you know, the people that, that are joining my, my organization now were born, they've never, they've never even seen apartheid. They're, they're kids coming out of university now that were born six years after apartheid ended. It's crazy to think how much can change in a generation. No, no. And it's so quick, you know, you know, you kind of think when, you know, when, you, when you're in, in, in those sort of situations, you think this will never change or take a really, really long time. And what's really amazing is that we, we grew up in a, in a, in a you know, apartheid uh, uh, country. We saw the peaceful transition, which was incredibly inspiring. One of the seminal things for me was uh, when I was, uh, this was in 94, 
when I was 23, I was actually at uh, the Union Buildings in Pretoria when uh, Nelson Mandela was inaugurated. Wow! Uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing moment to to see that. Crazy, yeah, just to feel the spirit, the energy in the air, and everything that's happened after that. Wow! Yeah, a hundred thousand people there, seeing that incredible human being. You know, after twenty seven years uh, in jail, and you know, I think one of the things for me that's so important and that that had a lasting effect on me, and is this idea of having compassion. Uh, and empathy for people to to be to be incarcerated for for that long, and then still to have the love and the compassion to be able to say, well, I want to, you know, we want to resolve this peacefully. And then if it wasn't for Nelson Mandela and his leadership, I think you know South Africa would have descended into to chaos. And I think in our dark days, uh, and and there are dark days, and we're in dark days now with with COVID. I think you know that's that's an inspiration. Uh, the type of things, the, the impossible can be possible. It certainly didn't seem in the early 90s and certainly not in the 80s in South Africa that we would that we would be able to exit this this horrible 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 situation that we're in but but we were and so yeah. talk about history in the making Gustav, looking at your your track record and your history i can tell you have a bit of an entrepreneurial streak <laughs> you know you've you've started a few things when did you first realize you had an entrepreneurial streak well and an admission i've never actually worked for somebody if in my life, um, uh, huh. so, so I think maybe uh, I hope that doesn't say anything I mean, you bad don't need about to. me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I, I was studying, and, and uh, I was very lucky to to find something that that uh, I was passionate about, uh, which was you know digital and computers and computer graphics and and AI, which I was studying during university. I was doing my honors degree. And nice. um, I think one of the one of the side effects, and you know, let's call it the, one of the unintended consequences of of the demise of apartheid, is that it tra- changed a lot of tra- trajectories uh, for for the better in South Africa. So suddenly, it made it possible for for people that were oppressed before to to pursue the type of careers they wanted to have. And and my preordained career, which as a white male South African would have been in the in apartheid days, would have been some kind of protected industry or you know you would have become some professional engineer etc cetera, etc cetera. but because because of this change uh, suddenly there there was an opportunity to do something that that wasn't in none of my family has has ever been an entrepreneur nowhere in our family going back generations huh. we are really? engineers and farmers and so Wow. I think one of the, I would not one have of the interesting that looking at you today. <laughs> zero, like zero, zero. I did not grow up at the knee of an entrepreneur. We didn't. Huh. We did not have. We don't have the genes for for trading. But I think what's what's so cool about what in, in times of rapid change is it, it going that route that I would have before wasn't open to me anymore. And so starting a, a business was was a, a viable means to 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 make a living. And so I I literally started a business when I was. 24 years old, which was my well, my first business, and I've been an entrepreneur ever since. And yeah. I did not also not know anything about nonprofits either. Um, and <laughs> most of my most of my 20s and 30s were spent building businesses, creating businesses, uh, and creating wealth for myself. Um, you know, I was I was not necessarily a selfish person, but certainly I didn't really have a wider conception of 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 the world and and how philanthropy and 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 the nonprofit space worked, and and that really came to me much later in life. 
That makes, that makes sense. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And it sounds like you dived in into the situation you found yourself and learned a lot, I'm sure, along the way mm. about starting a business sure. and about the aid sector. And, and I'd love to hear. Gustav, can you tell us a bit about maybe one of your first few ventures and what you learned from that experience as a, as a technology entrepreneur? My first venture was a digital animation company and a, and a, and a, and a web development company in the in the 90s. Digital animation. Every, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, we we built awesome. uh, we built a motion graphics and and, and motion capture uh, animation platform, uh, the only one and the first one in Africa. We wow. developed a, a children's animation series uh, similar to. Pixar were really our, our heroes and, and, and what they managed to do there. And we developed a children's channel, which ran for almost 10 years in South Africa, wow. which was uh, motion capture animation. And so we were way before, you know, most of the people listening now probably won't remember that, but but computers, big computers then were the size of fridges. There were things called <laughs> silicon graphics machines. They were all, all, they all ran Unix. I hope, I hope the technologists listening to this, but uh, my, my fingers, my fingers are, are, are burned into VI, you know, <laughs> uh, finger patterns and I still like text editors <laughs> over graphical editors it was it was really amazing because you climbed into a suit and you drove a real-time uh, a real-time character with uh, with a motion capture suit and so we we produced an hour of animation uh, every week and uh, it was a, it was an amazing experience this was in our 20s um, and we built a, a fantastic business doing that I really enjoyed that and uh, you know as when you're young you also make mistakes and 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 we we overextended a little bit uh we we had to we had to take on other shareholders uh, i became a minority in my own business you know a minority shareholder and, and i exited that business when i was in, in my early 30s and i started uh, i took a i took a sabbatical i did a lot of yoga and i decided to Wait, why did you stop i was not the master of my own destiny anymore and i was working for somebody else you know i we had other shareholders that that had to come in and, and, and rescue that business because we were overextended and made some i was a good technologist when you say overextended what does that mean <laughs> Just over leveraged, you know. We 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 grew really rapidly. We we borrowed money. We scaled like crazy. Um, and this was like in uh, two thousand uh, when when the the big dot com crash happened, and and we were left with you know we left we lost some big contracts, and you know we we ran we just basically ran out of out of steam, and and you know we had oh, to take on external capital and 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 got diluted yeah. out of the business, which is you know it was a good lesson. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was you, uh, you look at you, you talk know, about it with a smile, but at the time, I'm sure it was it was a tough lesson for you to learn. Well, it's always it's always the the tough you know it's all the tough things things where you you learn the the best lessons. But having said that, it was a, it was an incredible experience, and and many of the people that I that I hired and that I worked with are friends now and colleagues now still. Um, and I think that's another really big lesson that I've learned is. The you know your, your career will definitely any person's career will will change uh, in in their lifetime and and there will be many things one can do but the people that you work with are a constant and they come back to you huh. and you work with them and other and so the bonds that you make in your twenties yeah. in university years and your first jobs they they the type of people is you know they the type of people that you connect with over and over again um, I am literally right now involved in a in a new nonprofit that uh, a colleague uh, ex colleague of mine is starting now huh. but you you were talking about how you went on sabbatical and then after that how did you find your way yeah so one what what, what happened was uh, we uh, I, I was uh, on sabbatical i went for a trip to tanzania uh, to zanzibar specifically i was wandering around and uh, this is now in 2003 
that every single person had a mobile phone. This is 2003. You know, we sometimes forget how radically things can change in, in a short period of time. Yeah. Every, and these are those old Nokia, you know, every had like, the, they were, obviously there were no smartphones then, so, and we didn't call them dumb phones, they were just phones. <laughs> uh, but everybody had mobile phones. And one of the interesting things I observed was everybody was, people weren't really speaking on them, they were, they were texting. It, like you could always see the kind of, the posture was like looking down and, and texting. And uh, I just thought, this is really interesting. We are in Zanzibar and everybody's got phones, but the behavior is not necessarily speaking. And so there's something there. So I started a, a mobile technology company, which specifically used text-based technology. So USSD and SMS was practical consulting, which to this day is still running. I'm not actively involved as an executive there. I'm, I'm on the board. It's really successful. And that's now been running for 18 years or so and did some really amazing things. One of the first uh, organizations to, to use USSD for marketing and communication platforms. It launched mobile television in South Africa. Nice. And it kind of was predicated on this idea that everybody has a mobile phone and that commerce could be driven through mobile phones. And so it, we rode that wave in the early 2000s of a mobile technology kind of sweeping through Africa. At that point, it was maybe penetration is maybe 20, 30%. And mm -hmm. by now, as you know, mobile penetration is at 100%. Yeah. And I've seen Precult Consulting is has been very successful. You know, it's it's a force to reckon with. It's in the mobile space. There's lots going on in that space. There's lots going on in that space in Africa. I'm sure there's lots of business and lots of revenue that you generated through Precult Consulting. Why, why Precult.org? then you know why why go into this much poorer sector <laughs> yeah and then that's that i think that's the the real question so I, as i said I, I had no i had no knowledge or, or experience in, in building nonprofits. i didn't know i thought i thought nonprofits and philanthropy I, I thought of them as um as charities something that you donate to and certainly i thought it was a good cause i certainly didn't think that you could use technology and it, it, it was something that just did not compute in, in, in my brain as i'm sure i don't know you know i think a lot of uh, a lot of uh, listeners here probably came from the commercial environment as well. And then I think the the, the really big change for me is, a, is more on a personal note. Um, and I think a lot of big changes in life come from from things that happened early in, in your life. And, and so on a personal level, my, you know, I, I lost my parents to cancer uh, when I was young. Oh, no. And um, I'm sorry. And um, no, that, but, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things and, and you process that. And, and something that happened in, in South Africa, again, this is now post-apartheid, as the HIV AIDS epidemic hit the world, South Africa was really, really hard hit. Uh, South Africa had, had the worst HIV. It's so funny, you know, we look at, back at this now and, and, uh, and we forget how bad it was because, because of the rollout of ARVs, the situation is immeasurably better in South Africa now. But in the 2000s, we were in a terrible situation. We had the highest HIV death rate, the highest infection rates in the world. There were times where 30 to 40% of people in, in, in certain areas in South Africa were HIV positive. And we, and oh. we didn't have universal ARVs at that point. Um, and there was civil society did an amazing job in, 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 in essentially forcing um, and convincing and forcing government to, to roll out ARVs, which is one of the, 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 you know, the, the, the unbelievable successes in, in public health, I believe, in, in the world ever as a successful universal free rollout. It's interesting looking at the current pandemic, which a lot of people think as, you know, public health in their face for the first time. But in South Africa, you actually dealt with a much bigger, much more serious pandemic many years ago and were able to overcome it. HIV was way, way more in terms of percentages of, of people yeah. being, being, being affected. And I think... And, and mortality. And we found... But it, it, so what happened was um, 
I, in my in my thirties, uh, as I you know running a successful commercial enterprise dealing in mobile uh, phones, I on a personal level wanted to do something uh, to support uh, the hospice um, because the hospice was instrumental in supporting my parents, um, uh, you know, during their terminal illness, uh, and sense. I was doing. Something, you know, what's the first thing you do? You know, you kind of go to hospice and say, oh, can I help you guys? Um, now, remember, <laughs> hospice, is, uh, hospice is for terminal care. It, it, and, and we tend to equate hospice with cancer, terminal cancer care. But in South Africa, hospice during those years essentially meant people dying of AIDS. And I, as I, think, I think all of us have had this experience when you, when you and I know you as all, well, your background is in engineering, um, I always remember, you know, when, when you, you always have to ask yourself, you know, when you have an inflated sense of what you, you do, you ask your grandmother, you know, what, what do you, what do you think I do? And my grandmother used to say, you know, my grandson fixes computers. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, you, you spend years studying computer science and, and, but, but, and, and, you know, you always get, you're always a person who gets asked to, to do the antivirus thing or, you know, reinstall something. So, so when I supported the, the hospice, it, I ended up like installing the mail service and, um, which was cool. I mean, I, Here's I, 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 I like, CEO you know. of Precal Consulting, installing mail servers at the local hospice. That's wild. Yeah. And, uh, and imagine. then you, you always, you know, when you, as you, as you, as you mentor people, you always say, you know, as you grow from a, from a doer into a manager, you need to work at the right level, you know? And so I was asking myself, like, is this the best way that I can support the hospice? <laughs> Which is, it's useful, but is this really, uh, this is really what, uh, what I should be doing. I was, do, I was driving through, uh, at Ridgeville and, and visiting the, 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 the hospice and helping them with, you know, practical stuff like setting up their email servers and making sure that uh, that all worked. Anyway, part of that, then I started understanding the, the crisis. Uh, and I, and I, to my shame, I have to admit that I really didn't know enough. And there's also the other problem with, with using these things and why I do want to live in South Africa and why I think it's important is it is easier to avoid poverty and to avoid pain and to avoid other people suffering when you don't see it. And that's just the way it is. And part of, you know, part of living in South Africa is, is, is being faced with that every day and, and yeah. realizing no, I, I hear you. I, I think some people choose not to live in a country like this because they're faced with poverty every day. And what I don't get about that is that the poverty is there regardless of whether you see it or not. In fact, it's better if you see it because then you'll do something about it. And so I very much agree, Gustav, with what you're saying there about like being being there so that you can make a difference. Yeah. And 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 people compel to action. I think everybody's empathetic at some, on some level. We compel to action, but it's hard to be compelled to action when you just read a tweet and, you know, okay, well, I retweet something, I give some money, but, but doing something yourself, you, you're compelled to do something when you're faced with that in, in your own life. And part of... So part of uh, the way, uh, what happened was, sorry, uh, just to, to talk about like what, what happened um, in our journey then, we, we were working with hospice and um, learning more about the H- HIV epidemic at that point. And you, when you're faced with, with pain and, and, and with, uh, with suffering, you, you use the tools that you have. And so if it's installing email service, that's fine. And then <laughs> as I understood the, the problem better, um, I realized that there were small things that were that were leading to big problems. And so uh, to delve into that particular problem, which I think is to this day is really interesting because as we face a pandemic, these leaders are the same, is there was a basic problem. We had a very high rate of infection, 30 plus percent. We had low levels of testing. We had a solution. If people knew that they were HIV positive, then they would 
enroll on ARVs, which were free. And so you picked up your, your drugs on a monthly basis. As long as you kept on using the ARVs, um, then essentially it turned uh, AIDS or HIV into a chronic disease. Um, and so there was a path, except it was the, the problem was there were a couple of problems, but the big problems were people weren't, weren't enrolling, so weren't getting tested, so they didn't know. And then secondly is if they did, uh, then they were lost to follow up. So they might come and you stand in a long queue, you don't want to stand in a long queue, you lose a whole day of work, so you don't come back. And we know who you are, uh, so we should be reminding you. And so so one of the things that as I understood more about it, I, I thought, well, there should be a way. Remember, we were building these mobile technologies at scale to help sell beers. A different kind of good cause. Uh, across Africa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we were we knew that like everybody had mobile phones. And I think that naive optimism is a good thing because otherwise you'll never try anything. And so I ended up cold calling the second largest HIV hospital in the world. Uh, Helen Joseph, which as huh. I was lucky enough, it was literally around the corner from where I lived in Joburg at the time. I c- called them like a crazy person and just said, well, I think I can help you. And obviously they distrusted this lunatic that was <laughs> wanting. And it took me a while to convince them that That's I- That's amazing. I, I love that you had the gall to call them up and be like, hi, I'm Gustav. I'm going to help you. I just like, I just called, I literally called the, the, the front <laughs> the front desk and said, well, I think I can, I, I think about? I've got an idea. And I just kept on like badgering them. And then I, I met a, a really amazing chief uh, doctor there. It's a, a, a still amazing uh, group of, of physicians and doctors that run an incredible. They had 20,000 patients on ARVs at that time. And so the very practical thing, we ended up building a system for them. What persistence. Which uh, essentially all it did was register. Well, people were registered, but we got their mobile phone numbers. And it just reminded them they needed to get the, the next set of drugs. And if they didn't pitch up, it would remind them. And the other thing you could do, which sounds like a super basic thing, but it's like if you couldn't come on that day, you could reschedule. So you could do, and we did something oh. very, very cool. We, yeah. we allowed people to send a please call me, which is, you know, it's a South African invention, um, which we ended up doing a whole bunch of work with. It's a really cool idea. It's like, you know, I'm out of airtime. I need to mail, you know, I, you know. Right, which I a lot to, of people from poor environments, they just don't, they can't afford airtime. Exactly. They don't want to spend their airtime. And they got prepaid, so they're out of they're out of airtime. And now I need to go to the clinic, and I can't I can't phone them. So what I do is I phone the clinic with a please call me. So now it comes up as a please call me. We call you back, uh, or we SMS you back, and we allow you to change your appointment. And so that nice. small intervention would allow people then. So the the loss of follow up rate went down because people uh, rescheduled, um, and then the reminder program helped people get back. Very so that is basically the, the first project. That's awesome, and and it's often it's often those those simple you know what you call like a simple straightforward intervention that makes such a big difference. You know, if you can save them a day of work, you get them to the hospital. Even like the work that you're doing right now, you know, the the COVID Connect, you send people a message on their phones, and maybe that's the only way they're going to get information. Maybe they don't have access to the internet or to other means of getting real accurate information. It's the small little tidbits of information yeah. in a place where there's there's nothing else uh, that can really change the game. Wow. I love that. That's a great example. So it is a very simple intervention um, and, yeah. and uh, it was very successful. It ran for years. I think a version of it now still runs. It was called Text Alert, oh, nice. TXT Alert. and, and um, Amazing. Uh, yeah, I think a version of that still still is running to this day. And that was the first, uh, and that, that we didn't actually have an organization. And out of that, uh, really, we realized that we could essentially, this infrastructure, and so the, the core idea really at that point, and, and, and to this day, really, it's evolved, but the, the core idea was we had infrastructure, mobile phones and, and cell phone towers 
and it was being used to make money, so which is fine. You know, people have been commercial business on top of that. But we had a percentage of our population that had mobile phones, but they didn't weren't using it to improve their lives. They weren't accessing information because that information just wasn't being published and wasn't being made available. So the 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 raison d'être, the the mission statement of the organization is use technology to deliver the information so people could improve their lives. That was That's that awesome. was the core intent, and that was that was basically where we started the nonprofit, and 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 ba- and from there we were just we had some lucky breaks. We were very lucky that people noticed what we were doing. That was the first HIV intervention support program at scale using SMS that grew. You know, lots of other programs later, um, and uh, the organization now, you know, works in, in many countries. And over time, uh, you know, we d- tried a lot of things. We worked in various uh, verticals, but Preco.org now focuses exclusively on health. And the mission statement is still to use technology and to use communication technology specifically. But how we've refined is to say, and, and under the leadership now, I'm not, you know, I don't run a day to day. I've got an amazing managing director, Debbie Rogers, and an incredible team that's doing this work. Uh, but the focus now is to say we have still the, the core the mission statement and the core understanding is that we essentially have universal access to, to information. And so building direct to patient uh, information systems will have will be the heart of how we improve lives and improve health. And so you, we will never have enough doctors and nurses to help to, 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 to have everybody healthy, but we can give every single person on the continent access to quality, free healthcare information and support. And that can then lead to escalations and, you know, getting people into hospitals. So that's still the core mission. And, and then obviously that, that, that led to a lot of the work that, that we now have been doing the last two years with, with COVID response. I love that message. I was wondering, speaking as someone from South Africa that has built, you know, a South African nonprofit that has done incredible things here in South Africa, is there anything that, anything that you would say to the large international, maybe let me clarify where I'm coming from. You know, I come from Mm -hmm. Canada, (laughs) I'm working for an American organization. And I think there's a lot of aid that goes to these big international technology firms. But there's something to be said about what you knew was happening in Africa around apartheid with HIV, building the systems that you did. Is there anything that you can say to the broader aid community about other local technology startups like yours, like the barriers that you faced or the opportunities that maybe didn't exist for you, but you hope might exist for other social enterprises that arise in South Africa or elsewhere on this continent? I'm a technologist and I'll use software as a paradigm here or framing. We used to have a paradigm called waterfall, you know, where we designed everything up front. The theory was that you could understand the problem fully, design it, and then go and execute this. And we know that didn't work. And we developed better techniques for building software, understanding that the complexity was emergent. And so we now have other software practices. As you know, we have Agile or, or, or various versions of Agile where you, where you iteratively understand, as you build, you understand the problem better. So I like to think about aid the same way. Um, I think aid, even outside of the technology sector, I think aid is, is riddled with a kind of top-down thinking like software used to be. 20, 25, 30 years ago, you know, we can, we can dis- design and, and it's an admirable goal. And, you know, we all want to design mm-hmm. a better society, but I think uh, any, any decently complex problem has emergent properties, which aren't tractable 
at that level. Um, and so I think right. in, in this space specifically, and you need to be able to, to iterate on, on solutions and we need to be able to apply some of these techniques to, to these problems. I heard Paul Graham say something about that. It's like, well, you don't know which startups are, are going to work and that's why Y Combinator you know, funds so many of them and so many, many, many of them fail. Definitely there's something to learn there that you need to, you have to have experiments. Part of, of solving the problem here um, or in Nigeria or in Kenya or in any of these places is that you need to find local solutions. You need to have people on the ground that are face-to-face -face with the end users. Not necessarily, I'm not talking about human-centered design, uh, which is still a little bit of a top-down methodology. I'm, I'm talking about just actually knowing your customer and your end user and not patronizing them. And so asking them, what is the problem? Like maybe you just need to get to the clinic and that's the problem we need to solve. I love, I love that focus, that radical focus you get out of startups to go and solve a very particular problem and do it so well. And so I, I would love to, and so that's maybe my, my, my thing. That's kind of the way we solve problems. They, they, the thing is, if you do this really well, like what we're trying to do at Prekel.org, is to solve the problem of how a individual who wants to improve her life, how does she get the information? How does she get the guidance over the long term? And how does she access healthcare? But the important part here is that it's not how do I, as a technologist or as a minister of health, decide for her how she has to live. I didn't get to tell her, she gets to decide. And I think the, the interesting thing there is once you flip it around like that, then you can you can frame it as a series of problems that she has that you could solve individually. Of course, then you have we always will have a problem of coordination. So uh, but any system is going to have a problem of coordination anyway. If you if you're doing a top down, you're still going to have the problem that you have lots of interlocking systems that 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 need to communicate with each other. And so I think if we if we think about it that way, like why on earth are all the organizations getting USAID money? Sorry, and I'm not picking on USAID. <laughs> like this, that's just a it's a placeholder here, but aid money. Aid money. Why? Why is it always like? Why is it always the Beltway bandits? Why is it always like a US uh, NGO yeah. that that comes and zooms in with their white Toyota Land Cruisers? Why aren't we using local local partners more? And I know we keep on saying it, but like you know, why, why are there so few Prekel.orgs um, that are locally incubated that come from here that are building great technologies? There are certainly great commercial enterprises. There are amazing. I mean, Amazon was built right here in Cape Town. Amazon AWS. It was engineered in Cape Town. So the core engineering team was here. We can build AWS, but we have to get foreign aid and foreign technologies. And the, the, the solution has to include uh, local organizations in Nigeria, in Kenya, in, in the places. And it also means that things that are very important that we don't pay attention to, like language, localization, all those things will be better if we, if we, if we lean on, on local teams to, to help develop this, those solutions. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gustav. So, Gustav, over to our rapid-fire questions. First one for you, just a few sentences on each. Is there any asks that you would make to donors or policymakers that might be listening to this podcast? Ensure that you've got localized team teams, um, that you aren't working just with the international team who claim to have an on-the-ground team, um, but actually <laughs> deal, with, uh, deal with local organizations themselves, which comes with, you know, Headaches for sure, um, but mm. but I think that's really important. Um, support uh, support some of the really amazing new organisations that are starting up now. Um, you know, their teams that that are doing incredible work that are small that are doing work, especially now in, in India around COVID. 
and support some of those um, those new organizations that are experimenting. Um, that um, and and my ask would be, you know, we we help we are helping to incubate a whole bunch of uh, social entrepreneurs and, and, and nonprofits. I would say it'd be great, you know, a small bit of money, you know, small grants, unrestricted to some of those organizations can really go a long way and 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 can can help uh, develop systems that that potentially could scale. To, to to very large scale, but but those organizations do need support. Yeah, just to go on my little soapbox, um, with all the everything that's happening with digital goods right now, I find people in the aid sometimes they apologize for not using you know a USAID endorsed digital good. And while I think the digital goods are hugely important for sustaining good solutions that want to last, we also need to remember that that there's a whole ecosystem of smart dedicated, passionate young people from the countries that we're trying to serve? And how do we just give them the step up onto the ladder so that they can get going? Because we don't have all the solutions and there are so many solutions we've yet to build um, that are going to solve real problems. Yeah, all right. exactly. Moving on. <laughs> Gustav, do you, is there any gotchas um, that you'd like to highlight, a common implementation mistake or fix in the different programs or interventions that you've been a part of? Taking too long. I think you know <laughs> oh, taking wow. too long to do, just 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 over designing trying to build the perfect uh, Rube Goldberg machine you know not iterating fast enough I just think inertia is death like trying to over design I, I think we've all been in, in that situation it's 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 frustrating and and exhausting working on those projects not not all projects can go fast obviously but um I I just you know, I think that what the last years taught us is things can go fast if you want them to go yeah. fast. Um, I cannot believe what is what we what we've been able to do in the last year because people actually just they just they just made it happen. I mean, the, the, the global WHO bot was built in seven days. Like That's it was crazy. just it was it was wow. it was literally seven two days. weeks from from two weeks from when we started chatting to to WHO and, and WhatsApp to it going live and supporting 15 million people. It was just, it's oh, unbelievable wow. what you could do. Contracts, legal, the technology, et cetera. So it's a thing, if you can do that in two weeks, no, of course we can't build national systems that fast, but I think that, I think how long we've taken to do certain things um, in the past. And, and, and I hope that, you know, and I look at the, the, the COVID vaccine programs, for instance, that are launching now in South Africa, how quickly they were built, how, how quickly they were they roll, rolled out. Um, and of course, you can make mistakes. I'm not saying, you know, this is an emergency, not everything can go that fast. But I certainly think public health and the, the service that we build in, in the public sector, need, need to, we need to move faster to, to support uh, people that are in need. Those are bold words. And I love the kick in the pants. It gives the industry. I think I think it needs it. Gustav, would you like to offer a kudos or a shout out to another mover or shaker in this field? Well, I, I, you know, we're obviously in the middle of COVID um, and in the middle of a spike in India. Um, we're all worried about what's happening in the third wave here in South Africa and potentially in the global south. Um, and uh, so I want to shout out to, to all the Organizations that are working on the ground, especially now in India, um, that that are that are working through really tough situations. Neuro Health, by the way, is one of one of the partners that we work with that we support um, uh, through through the work that they're doing. Is you know Edith Elliott uh, that started that. That's an incredible organization, um, and 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 the work that they're doing there is a great example for 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 that. I also I want to give a shout out to World Health Organization um, uh, and Andy Patterson especially uh, and the team there and Ginny. 
and Jamie and 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 obviously our team that supported them, but the World Health Organization also, you know, um, much aligned, much much, you know, people are so critical. But the, the, that that team, um, the the partners that we work with there, have not taken like any leave or any holiday for like almost two years now. It's it's incredible how hard they've been working. Um, and obviously the the healthcare workers more generally, just the the selflessness there. Um, yeah, and I just think it's just we've just been very lucky the uh, the working in the last two years with incredible organisations that that are doing so much work and, and people just giving so much to 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 get us through the this pandemic. Nice, Gustav. What is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry? Uh, Hacker News for me. Um, nice. With warts, warts and all, I should say. Um, <laughs> it's. Uh, it's it's not the perfect medium, but it's it's the one that I enjoy the most uh, in terms of staying on top of uh, uh, staying on top of uh, technology innovation. Makes sense. Last question for you is just for fun. If you could recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast, just in your personal interest. Well, apart from yours, obviously, um, <laughs> of course. The uh, lately, the the a, a lot of people have read it, but good good economics for hard times. Um, you know. Duflo and Banerjee, it's it's a fantastic work. Um, I love the. I, I think it's it, ma- it makes me ashamed that I that we are so bad at running good RCTs and 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 evidence mm. uh, work. It made me. I, I only got to reading it this year, but it's a it's a fantastic book. Uh, it made me just really really. Uh, I'm proud to say that we are actually working, and, and our team is is working with. Uh, uh, on an RCT right now, uh, and uh, on some of the work that we're doing, um, I think we, you know, we do A/B tests in technology all the time, and then the moment you say, say you know, randomized controlled trial, then suddenly everybody says, "Oh, that takes too long, and and we shouldn't mm. be doing it; it's too expensive." But I think that that mm-hmm. uh, evidence, and, and and I mean, I'll put my hand up here that you know we're also guilty of not not having enough evidence around some of these uh, innovations that we're doing. But um, it just gave me a renewed energy to to ensure that we have um good evidence uh, um uh, around our programs and then and the classic uh, eve uh, Schoenard, who wrote uh, let my people go surfing um, huh. and obviously you know he's a, he's a founder of, of of patagonia um it resonates with me on a couple of levels building you know building a, a sustainable ethical company and i think there's a lot of for, for people that are coming from the for-profit space i think there's a lot to learn there or a lot to lot to enjoy and a lot to learn. It, it certainly was an inspiration to me uh, in terms of thinking around my for-profit uh, journey and, and, and then switching over to doing social impact work. Um, I, think, uh, I think what's so amazing now is we don't need to cho- choose only one path. You know, we can, we can build. There's so many interesting ways to, to solve problems. There are, you know, hardcore commercial businesses. There are nonprofits. There are hybrids like benefit corporations. And, the, and, and, and books like, like People Go Surfing are... That's a it's a it's inspiration to the the type of of impact businesses we can build. Um, yeah, using the I will say after after my husband finished reading the Patagonia book, now like we can't we can't throw a tire away. He's going to fix it himself. You know, like the of furniture. Course. Like we can't get new furniture. He's just going to like you know nail a board onto it and everything else. It's uh we've become more sustainable, and I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe as a as a just a as a coder here, uh, uh, you know, we on the on the social impacts accelerator that we ran now we had over 600 applications and and that was really oh, nice. exciting you know we we had this call to action we didn't really advertise it we had 600 applications from around the world um and wow. a lot of them are like small scrappy even like pre like some of them aren't even registered yet social enterprises nonprofits um government entities um 
uh, all, all wanting to do really interesting uh, work. And I and I what what I found really interesting is that we've we have got applications in uh, educational uh, oriented organisations and obviously health organisations, social justice oriented ones, and hardly any. Uh, like if I not even a handful that that had the environment uh, as the primary means to to address equity and and, and injustice, um, and I thought that was really interesting. And I think that's that maybe it's a it's a for that's maybe it's a, something I I'm really interested in going forward is how how do we use these tools? I mean I know a lot of us are focused on education and health; those are I think more tractable to solving this way. But I think the environment. It's it's you know if you if we're talking about a problem that's going to outlive us, um, that's that's the problem that we should all be paying attention to. And I I, I would love because are you going for an even bigger problem now? Is that what's happening? Well, I would love to now. Now my focus as I get older, my focus changes. And now I'm a cheerleader, so so I'm supporting <laughs> other other organizations in, in, in achieving their impact. Um, and hopefully hopefully I can help help support them, advise them, and we can help help uh, raise money for them. But but the areas I think uh, that, and I think environment, uh, especially and an sustainable environment, and especially focusing on the most vulnerable, I think there's, a, there's just a lot of innovation I think that's needed there. Um, so I'm really, uh, maybe that I'll ask, uh, you know, when, when the space, let me, let me just ask. I think I would love to, to see whether we can't run an accelerator or find ways to accelerate uh, innovation in that area. Um, that, and specifically yeah, focus on the that. vulnerable, not top down, but like Kailicha is around the corner. We, we have one of the most dangerous places in, on the planet to live is literally around the corner from our house. Those people are daily just struggling to survive. How are we going to support what are the problems we? How, how do we? How do we build a, a sustainable environment? How do we make their lives easier in a sustainable way? Um, and I think there's just a, a world of really interesting uh, solutions to be built there. Um, so let's go and find them. Wow, Gustav, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and opening up. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Just a few weeks ago, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization, celebrated a major milestone. He announced the one-year anniversary of a WhatsApp service, which he credits with bringing life-saving health messages into the hands of millions across the world. This platform was built by a little organization from South Africa, an organization that got started with Gustav installing servers at the local hospice. Isn't that wild? If you'd like to learn more about Gustav and his organizations, check out our show notes at aidevolved.com. And if you like what you heard, let us know on Twitter at 8Evolved or by email at podcast at 8Evolved.com. We'll see you next week.